You are listening to the Lotus and the Rose podcast, featuring highlights of 10 years of interfaith conversations between Tibetan Buddhist Lama Somo and mystical Christian Matthew Fox. They've both taken less-traveled spiritual paths, giving them each a fresh perspective informed by their own routes and the nature and challenges of today's world. Today's episode centers around interfaith. For more information on these two unique teachers, please check out the show notes of this episode, but here's a brief summary to get you started. Lama Somo was born into an American Jewish household, retaining those roots as her spiritual search eventually led to her immersion in Tibetan Buddhism and her 2005 ordination as a Tibetan Buddhist Lama. She has taught hundreds of students in the West and in Asia, is the author of the award-winning book Why is the Dalai Lama Always Smiling, and has dedicated herself to bringing the proven methods of Tibetan Buddhism to the modern world through the offerings of the Namshak Foundation. Matthew Fox was a member of the Dominican Order for 34 years and continues as an internationally recognized voice and catalyst for mystical Christianity. He is a reinventor of worship, an author, an activist, and the force behind the Fox Institute of Spirituality and the Order of the Sacred Earth. The late historian and theologian Thomas Berry wrote that Matthew Fox might well be the most creative, the most comprehensive, surely the most challenging religious spiritual teacher in America. I first met Matthew Fox through his book, Original Blessing. I was struck both by his brilliance and by the truth of what he was saying in the book. Then I got to appreciate him on another level as personal friend more and more as we kept talking. Just the joy of conversation and interaction and the, the adventure of inquiry that both of us are so passionate about. I appreciate working with Lama Somo for a lot of reasons. One is that she's down to earth, she's a mother. She's taken some big leaps, courageous leaps, in terms of leaving her own culture to learn another very different language and culture. And of course, to immerse herself deeply into the practice and the philosophy of Buddhism. And I think she's come back with a fine capacity for articulating uh, to Westerners what uh, the wisdom of this uh, profound tradition is all about. It was you who first uh, proposed that we do this series. What was your mission statement? What was in your mind? Uh, well, I think we're living at a time, obviously, where the human species needs all the wisdom it can get. On our path, currently, we're unsustainable, period. Any fool can figure that out. So what do we have to do? We have to call on whatever wisdom is available and bring it together, mm-hmm. not hold it in isolation. So I think the goals I had in terms of our dialogues were to bring the wisdom of the East, of the Buddhist, especially the Tibetan tradition, together with the wisdom of the West and Christianity, which is, of course, in its depth, profoundly Jewish, to bring these together and see what third thing, really, we have to give birth to today, you might say. I mean, I think it's not just a matter of putting our cards on the table and dialoguing, but of actually within the context of the ecological crisis and the context of economic breakdowns, political upheavals, and religious fundamentalism, you know, in all the contexts that we face today, what are some healthy ways to stay grounded and to find new directions? I felt that these conversations can help us to do that. of us is very strongly rooted in a particular lineage, although we also have inquiring minds and have sort of explored the whole smorgasbord. 
for Americans in particular, I think, getting a chance to hear from people who are so strongly rooted in a particular lineage and tradition, you get a chance that's unusual to see what the benefits of that might be. Because America does the smorgasbord really well, but as far as going deeply into a particular tradition, that doesn't happen so often. I think one Geshe who was advising an American on spiritual pursuits put it really well when he said, uh, you know, you can dig a hole anywhere and get to water, but if you keep digging shallow holes here and there, you never get to water. Everybody wants to finally get to water. And let me say, someone was very humble, but I was at her ceremony when she was made a Lama this past summer. You know, I, I really admire her perseverance and her passion, profound grounding in this tradition. And I, I like the way she began about going uh, deeply into our water holes instead of just staying at the surface and never getting to the water. And of course, that conjures up for me a great line from my mentor, Meister Eckhart, who says, God is a great underground river, and no one can dam up and no one can stop. I call it one river, many wells, because <laughs> my image is that there are many wells into that underground river. There's a Buddhist well, there's a Sufi well, there's a Christian well, there's a Jewish well, there's a goddess well, there are the indigenous wells. And today I think even science, as it turns more toward wisdom and less from just knowledge, is also a well. Your artistic experiences of music, singing, and other forms of art are also wells. So the point is to go deeply down a well. I was doing a workshop on a weekend in um, Malibu, California. They put me up in a Buddhist home Friday night. They said to me, now, some people may come early in the morning and chant. And there are a lot of Buddhist statues around. It's a very beautiful home. And sure enough, about five in the morning, this group came in and started chanting in the living room. And it was beautiful to wake up to these Buddhist chants. And when I went back to sleep, I had this dream about Jesus and Buddha. And this is what I learned, that Buddha lived to be about 84, and he saw all of life. He'd been a prince and a husband and a father and a beggar and, and a teacher and a seeker and all that. He went through all of life and died serenely. Jesus got himself killed at about the age of 30. There's a big difference there. So what I learned is to be a human being today, we need both the serenity and the patience of the Buddha, and we need the impatience and the prophetic outrage of the prophets like Jesus. I, I don't think Buddhism has all the answers, and I don't think Christianity has all the answers. I think we have to forge, we have to create something today, including science, of course, which, uh, which works. I think we have to ask, what does Buddha uh, bring to Westerners? What does the Buddhist tradition bring? And what does the Western tradition bring to the East? You know, the Dalai Lama, he gave a talk to his monks a couple of years ago. He said, we Buddhists are great at meditating on compassion and talking about compassion. We should imitate the Christians more in practicing compassion. So Gandhi learned his prophetic impatience from Jesus and from Tolstoy, who taught him Jesus. Whereas the other Hindus in Gandhi's day were saying, don't worry about these untouchables. Next time around, if they're good this time around, they'll do better. Gandhi's ire got heated up, and he said, no, we want to do something about injustice this time around. So I think that the East has something to give the West, and the West has something to give the East. 
Okay, another marriage that's happening is that of human and divine. This is a recovery of mysticism. Everything that Soma has learned and found and, and traveled to, to experience from the Eastern mystical tradition, many people of our generation have taken journeys east or someplace to find the mysticism. We have Eckhart's, we have Hildegard's, we have Aquinas as a mystic, and Jesus as a mystic. We have great mystics, but we have to demand of our religious traditions that we bring them forth and demand of ourselves. You can't pass it off on the Pope or a bishop. You know, we have to find our mystical lives again. And that's a huge thing. But it's so within our grasp. It's so needed. This is postmodern. I find this younger generation is, is profoundly mystical. This is why they're not in church anymore. Another marriage is East and West. That's what we've been doing this weekend. With Somo from Tibet and myself from the West. And this is happening everywhere. The West represents that prophetic dimension of breaking through history to stand up for, for justice. Gandhi said, I learned to say no from the West. Humans need that, but they also need the Eastern sense of yes and of yielding to the cycles of life and of incarnation. So I think we're all limping if we're either all Eastern or all Western. We need both. We need holy patience and holy impatience. Another is a view of reality that seems similar to me. For example, my rabbi, <laughs> when I sat and talked for hours with him, I said, let's get rid of terminology and just say, if you were to describe the source of everything we see, how would you describe it? And as he's sitting there talking, I'm thinking, he's sounding like a llama. <laughs> it was unbelievable. He asked me some very pointed questions and I answered him from my training and my experience. He just stopped, and he was like kind of amazed, so I could see he was going through the same experience. And then, of course, the experience in someone's home. Hopefully, there's been a growth along the way of our mutual awareness and exchange. I think it's assisted me to see the world through more Buddhist eyes. The last several books I've written, I've certainly brought in the Buddhism in a big way. My book on Meister Eckhart, for example, I have a chapter on Meister Eckhart and Thich Nhat Hanh because Eckhart is so Buddhist in so many of his teachings. My most recent book is on Thomas Merton. And of course, Thomas Merton was very important to the Dalai Lama. They met on Thomas Merton's last journey, his journey to the East. Dalai Lama was 33 years old. They fell in love with each other. They both canceled their next day's appointments to spend an extra day together. And the Dalai Lama actually was asked a year or two ago, he was asked by a journalist, do you believe in God? And the Dalai Lama paused and he said, well, yes, I do. And the journalist said, are you sure? A lot of Buddhists don't talk about God. So what kind of God do you believe in? And the Dalai Lama paused and he said, I believe in the God of Thomas Merton, <laughs> which is kind of fun. Merton was important to my spiritual education because it was he who advised me to go to Paris to study. As I say, I'm, I'm constantly being alerted to the overlap between my Western tradition and Buddhism. One of the things so striking about Eckhart, he never read a Buddhist, he never read Metta Lama Somo, or an ancestor of hers, and yet he, he talks in very Buddhist language a lot of the time. To me, this underscores the universal wisdom of the Buddhist tradition that they've uncovered 
realities of the human psyche and of consciousness that are universal. But Eckhart got there through his tradition. They journeyed to the same place. And then I went back to Aquinas, whom I'd had years of study with as a Dominican, because he was a Dominican. But they had never introduced us to the mystical side of Aquinas. And of course, I learned why when I got into Aquinas. They had never even bothered to translate his most mystical works. So I translated these and did a work on Aquinas' mysticism. Here were three heavyweights, Aquinas, Hildegard, and Eckhart, who were all in a lineage. Aquinas quotes Hildegard. Of course, Eckhart is very much a student of Aquinas because he came in the Dominicans right after Aquinas died. And these people were drawing on this cosmic Christ tradition, the tradition of the Buddha nature in all of us. And here's how I see it in terms of light. That Jesus as an individual, like the historical Buddha, was a light, a particle. We now know that light is both particle and wave. And scientists fought about that, I think, for a hundred years. Is it particle or is it wave? It's both. So that's how I see the Buddha, and I also see Jesus and the Christ. That as an individual, Jesus is a particle of light. But as Christ, the risen Christ, if you will, or the spirit of Christ, like the Buddha nature, it is a wave. And so I, too, as an individual, I am a particle. But as part of the whole, your metaphor of the ocean, the Christ wave breathes through me as the Buddha nature breathes through other beings. And the fact that science now is telling us that photons and light waves are in every atom in the universe, for me, affirms the mystical intuition of John 1 that says Christ is the light in all beings. For me, the name, the Christ, or the Buddha nature hardly matters because they're both inadequate, but they both carry weight. They carry both historical substance because both of these beings lived, struggled, and taught, and because others have followed their teachings. So it does carry that kind of weight, but we should never get bogged down with concepts or with name. Uh, they're all inadequate. Aquinas says that the most important thing we know about God is that we do not know God. It's that sense of humility that I think is so lacking in so many crusades, inquisitions, and religious dogma. One thing I want to make explicit that so many Westerners are unaware of. Now, for me, this is an affirmation of the universality of Buddha's teaching how he's dealing at the level of archetype and even deeper, of being. Because both Eckhart and Aquinas have in their writings pure Zen or pure Buddhist teachings. And their methodology is a very simplified form of letting go of all thoughts, and letting go of all images. Part of Western spiritual practice the East, too. Certainly Buddhism is, is very profound in its intellectual developments. I'm sure it sees that, too, as part of its spiritual journey and heritage and so forth. And these great minds and hearts that Soma refers to, you know, carried these. Well, so does Aquinas. And this is what he says. And these are just images from the Bible. Even the very ones who were experienced concerning divinity, such as the apostles and prophets, praise God as the cause of all things, for the many things that are caused. They praise God as good, and then he gives a quote, Luke 18, as beautiful, the Song of Songs, as wise, as beloved, as God of gods, the Psalm 50, as holy of holies, as eternal, as the cause of the ages, as a bestower of life, as wisdom, 
as mind, as intellect, as reason, as the knower, as king of kings, as the ancient of days, as without age and unchanging, as justice, as magnitude exceeding all things. God is in the light breeze. They say God is even in minds and hearts, in spirits, in bodies, in heaven, on earth, at the same time, in the same place, involved in the world, above the world, super celestial, above the heavens, super substantial, the sun, the constellations, a star, the fire, the water, the air, the dew, the cloud, the stone, the rock, and all the other beings attributed to God as cause. That means every being in the universe is a name for God. That's what he's saying. And the divine one is none of these beings insofar as God surpasses all things. The via positiva is finding God in every being, every being revealing itself to you, every whale and every rock and every forest. And the via negativa is about realizing that God has no name, is beyond all names. The West has such a rich history around questions like, what about names for God? And we've been sleeping on them. One of my favorite practices is from Sufism, the 99 most beautiful names for God that you recite on a rosary. And I just the other day, I, I sat down and shut my eyes. I said, I wonder if as a Christian, I can come up with 99 names. It's like three in the morning. And two hours later, I had 149 names for God. And they're still growing. We can do these things too. Not only can we, we have to do them. That's the whole point. If you're going to wake up this ecclesial cadaver called the church, give it a kick and see if there's any life in it. Maybe it's not worth waking up. Maybe there is no life in it. That's the via transformativa. We're not getting what we deserve and our young people aren't getting it from our inheritance. And Jung himself said, you know, we Westerners cannot be pirates thieving wisdom from foreign shores as if our own culture was an error outlived. He's demanding that we look at our Judaism, our Christianity, our whatever it is, and find what's worthwhile to pass on to our kids. Actually, the Dalai Lama has said a similar thing when people have asked him. I, I was in the audience when somebody asked, <laughs> what religion should I practice? <laughs> and he said, well, for me, I have to say I am confirmed Buddhist. Ha, 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 ha. Everybody laughed. <laughs> then he went on and said, really, whatever religion you come from can have a lot of juice for you, and you should start there and look there to see, is this going to be a good spiritual path for you? If that's not the case, of course, then you don't have to be, you know, chained to it, and you can study another religion, but that's a question of choice. I think it's great that we have this balance here because you went deep into your tradition and found the juice. And I went into my tradition and didn't really find the things that I was looking for to really pursue the path of enlightenment. But Jung also said, because I studied Jung in my counseling psychology degree, he said those archetypes that come from your own culture and your own tradition from that culture are going to be naturally attached to very deep parts of your unconscious. Mm -hmm. And so you can then use those to very good effect. I wanted to, you know, try and find that from my tradition and just wasn't really able to. So what I found was that there were enough deeply archetypal from the collective unconscious universal archetypal things from Tibetan Buddhism. And my connection with uh, my teacher was such, I think from maybe lifetimes ago, that I found it accessible because I'm an American and I've uh, studied psychology and everything and have some understanding of 
the mind and how it works and some bridges that worked for me I can share with Westerners. So I think we make a good balance in this department beside mm -hmm. the other ones. Yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And that you're a woman and that you're a mother. I mean, you bring all this to it. It's very special to have a vocation like yours. I agree that Buddhism in its many forms, of course, Buddhism comes, as you said, in many traditions and lineages, many, many wonderful practices, etc. But believe me, there are many in Christianity, too, that people don't have a clue about. In the old days, in monastic traditions, in monastic orders, and certainly in, in Eckhart's time, they were chanting these phrases, and in the chanting, something much more cellular and physical happens. In the Middle Ages, you know, a lot of people were illiterate, but they were able to chant phrases and turn them into spiritual devices, and into mantras, actually. And like I say, the rosary itself is a mantra device of repetition and therefore beat and rhythm that goes over and over and puts you into an altered state. What I'm saying is there are a lot more practices than we have today. They've been lost, at least temporarily suspended. Eckhart asked that same question, what remains, mm -hmm. what lasts? Mm -hmm. And his answer, and he says this more than once, so it's up in his mind a lot, too. his answer is, what is inborn within me remains. Now, would you say that is very much like awareness? Do you think awareness is something that's inborn within us? Absolutely. The term in Tibetan Buddhism for sentient beings, it, that term sentient beings means that a being in there experiencing things, is being aware of the experiences it's having and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, who is experiencing the suffering? So there's some kind of awareness that is. Eckhart gets that from the passage in John's Gospel where the Christ is saying, you will bear fruit, fruit that remains. Mm -hmm. and Eckhart keeps coming back to that. Well, what remains? What fruit remains? Mm -hmm. That seems to be a very Buddhist question to them. The Buddha talked a lot about impermanence of things. Mm -hmm. Anything that is a composite of things is eventually going to come apart. Mm -hmm. Well, that would cover a lot of things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, What's left? Everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What isn't a composite of things? Mm -hmm. And what's left is the Dharmakaya. The Dharmakaya is that pregnant emptiness out of which everything comes. And it never was something put together. And there are no pieces and parts to come together. How can it fall apart? And that is that which is inborn within me. Yeah, because the quality of this emptiness, there are several qualities of it. One of them is awareness, mm -hmm. knowing. Another quality of it is unimpeded compassion, because if there's no sense of separateness, then the feeling of suffering or any sort of, you know, experience is felt throughout the whole. So it's ultimate compassion. If you've enjoyed the conversations of Lama Somo and Matthew, please visit namshock.org forward slash podcast for additional information and resources. That's N-A-M-C-H-A-K. The full record of their discussions, The Lotus and the Rose, is available on Amazon. The book also provides streaming access to full videos of their conversations, totaling almost nine hours. For more information on Lama Somo and the learning programs of Namshak, please visit namshak.org. For more information on Matthew Fox and his teachings in creation spirituality, visit matthewfox.org. This podcast was produced by Byron McCoy with Audio Wool Productions. Music from this episode has been used with the permission of Nawang Xiong, Sounds True, and Harmonia Mundi USA. Videos from which this audio was taken were directed by Katie Robin Garten with Sprout Films Incorporated. Full credits are available in the show notes of this episode. <laughs>